Think of your favorite song. How does it make you feel? What images do you see when you hear it? Before reaching the brain to create those feelings and images, those musical sounds take a strange, physical, mechanical, and sometimes violent path through the ear. A large part of how we perceive the audible world depends upon a set of tiny, vibrating bones. Bones that often get overlooked until something goes wrong. Today, we're going to tell the story of these unsung skeletal heroes. We'll talk about the role they play in hearing, and how unforeseen circumstances can cause irreparable damage. Welcome to the Bone Lab. Alright, this is gonna be weird, okay? Okay. That's Joan. I asked her if she pictured anything while listening to the song. It just sounds like you're walking into a rainforest and there's a lot of birds. The mood that I sort of picture, you know, it's like like you're walking in there and you're kind of unsure. Like the way the music builds up makes me think that you're going to discover something in the rainforest. I don't know if it's like if you're going to discover some aliens. Friend of the show, Eric Petrus, created this music by layering bird songs he recorded over time. Some were recorded in Chicago, some were recorded in the Bay Area, and then he chopped those recordings, he rearranged them, and he even played some of them backwards. Technically, none of those bird songs exist in reality. Often, when Eric makes music, he mixes in ambient recordings like this from specific moments in his life to conjure scenes and emotions. Audio for me is memory. And I have an iPhone just like everybody else does, but I use that iPhone or I use recording equipment in a very sort of different way. I record moments. I have collected audio from a bus in Munich or from an alley in Chicago where there was some Ukrainian opera drifting out of a window. For me, what's more compelling about listening than about seeing is that I can shut my eyes and the scene is there. And it takes me back to those individual moments in a way that I think just looking at a movie would never do. Eric worked at a radio station during college, and the experience dramatically changed the way he interacted with sound. What was really transformative was taking that microphone and putting it out the window and listening through headphones and really hearing in this strangely unfiltered and and sort of intensive sense the otherwise rather boring and ignorable a suburban world that was outside the door. Suddenly, hearing a distant train whistle or an airplane take off was a transcendent experience, until his accident just a couple years later. The audiologist came back in with the result, and the ENT looked at it, and he said, you have permanent hearing loss. I was, I think, 20 years old, and my hearing level had gone to that of maybe a 40-year-old. And this absolutely blew me away. It was frightening because it put me face-to-face with losing this sense that only in the you know, past year or so I'd really kind of tuned into. This was just after Eric attended a Flaming Lips concert. I was right up front in front of this like gigantic bank of speakers. And if you know the record, uh, a number of the songs have these insanely loud, blasting, like compressed strings. 
And when you're in front of a bank of very, very loud PAs that are blasting those strings at you and you don't have earplugs, it's a terrible, terrible situation. I left that show and I was utterly baffled by how little I could hear. It's not that surprising that he felt a little bit deaf after that show. I was in the third row of a Flaming Lips concert in college, and my hearing was never quite the same afterwards. Eric became concerned when the ringing in his ears and that muffled sensation didn't go away. I started to get more and more concerned about this, until finally I went to an ear, nose, and throat physician. And they ran me through a hearing test and, you know, basically did whatever they do, looking in the ear, pulling out things which were obviously blood clots from the fact that the sound was so loud that I had bled in my ear. He has permanent hearing loss and his ears were filled with blood. How did this happen from listening to music? To make sense of what happened to Eric that night, we need to understand how the ears are organized and how the ears detect sound. A crucial part of that process is a set of tiny bones in the ear called ossicles. In light of how much they do for us, you might say that they're the unsung heroes of the skeletal system. While many bones are big and strong and enable us to move our bodies or protect our organs, the ossicles are very small, only a couple of millimeters in length. That's basically the size of an ant. And they're delicate. These bones are actually encased by a protective layer of bone inside the skull. There are three ossicles in each ear, and they have funny names. The malleus, the incus, and the stapes. These translate to the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. You can actually form a pretty accurate mental picture of these bones based on their names. It's pretty remarkable that three small bones connected to some tissues and nerves vibrating gives you the sort of range of sound that you can hear. These small bones are key players in our perception of sound. They take sounds from outside the body and pass them along to the brain. There are three checkpoints that sound has to get through before reaching our brains. How sound travels through these three spaces is sort of like a pinball machine. It's physical, there are a lot of moving parts, some are like springs, some are like paddles, and the whole process is kind of bizarre and complicated. Our friend Manny Haragi, an ear, nose, and throat doctor, helped describe the anatomical pinball machine inside our ears. Sound is just pressure waves created by some kind of object vibrating, or a set of objects vibrating. And those pressure waves are transmitted through the air, and your pinna, your outside ear, focuses those sound pressure waves into your ear. Picture the outer ear as a funnel connected to a tube. And then that pressure wave is picked up by your eardrum. That vibrates at the same frequency as the sound wave coming in. The anatomical term is the tympanic membrane, more commonly known as the eardrum because it looks and acts like a drum. It's thin, it's stretched tight, it's a single layer of skin, and it's pretty easy to break. The position of the eardrum at the end of the funneled ear canal is the reason why doctors like Manny are so concerned with our ill-advised Q-tip use. But can I please get that earwax spa removal business that doctors do? So when they use that little squirter? I want the like, no, no, or like the tubes. I want the chunks removed. So what's weird about, what's interesting, I shouldn't say weird, what's interesting about the ear is that the way the hair cells grow in it, Mm -hmm. they spiral out. All Mm -hmm. that that earwax would just come out naturally. Am I ruining 
the spiral morphology by Q-tipping my hairs? If I say yes, will you stop using Q-tip? I feel like I should say that because I'm on, I'm on tape. You should be careful. You should not use Q-tips. The eardrum is a partition between the outer ear and the air-filled chamber called the middle ear. In the middle ear, we meet our first ossicle, the hammer. One end of this tiny hammer is attached to the inner surface of the eardrum, and the other end of the hammer connects to the anvil, which in turn connects to the stirrup. And the stirrup connects to the innermost chamber of the ear. So the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup are connected end-to-end and suspended in place by tiny little muscles and tendons. The little ear ossicles pick up that pressure energy and turn it into mechanical energy. The muscles relax the tension or tighten the tension, more tension on the bones. Mm-hmm. They either dampen the sound or can like you know have it go straight through. So far, we've followed sound as it funnels from the outer ear, through our ear canal, vibrates the eardrum, and moves the tiny bones in our ear. But we haven't technically heard these sounds yet. They haven't been sent off to the brain. This doesn't happen until the final chamber, the inner ear. And then that gets transmitted to the cochlea through the oval window, and that that mechanical injury is then transformed into more pressure waves, into the liquid. At this point, our tiny ossicles have brought the sound to the inner ear. The inner ear is a spiral of bone called the cochlea. It looks just like a snail shell, and it's filled with liquid. Vibrations from the ossicles make waves in the fluid. This sloshing back and forth stimulates tiny nerves inside the cochlea, which are called hair cells. Note that these hair cells are different from the hairs that grow inside the ear canal. You know, those hairs that Manny insists naturally clean the ear canal. No Q-tips needed. These nerves have little hair-like protrusions, hence the name, that wave back and forth as the pressure waves are carried through the fluid. It's kind of like how seaweed waves back and forth in the ocean. This movement triggers the nerves to fire off signals to the brain. And this is the moment we've been waiting for. This is when we finally hear. You can probably see why we compared hearing to a game of pinball. Our ability to hear depends on this complicated series of events where sound is funneled from outside of our heads, through three chambers of the ear, and finally sent off to the brain. But why do we hear this way? It's so complicated it seems almost silly. The short answer is that mammals evolved this really complex mechanism so that they could multitask. When we say mammals, this includes us, humans. Mammals have a huge advantage over other animals because they can hear well and chew their food at the same time. Say you are a small, tasty rodent with a super high metabolism and you need to eat constantly to survive. But at the same time, you need to listen for that hungry bobcat or predatory coyote. Speaking of mammals, let's get back to Eric. How did that happen to his ears? You, know, you hear this after like an explosion or something where there's like a massive pressure wave that comes out that'll blow. Yeah. You know, something like that. Of course, that'll, that'll knock out your eardrums. Eardrums <laughs> can't handle that kind of stuff. You know, it takes a lot of sound. It takes a lot of decibel. It takes a lot of pressure to blow your eardrum. So how do you actually blow out your eardrum from music? So it has to do with like how how many decibels you know the whole decibel range thing you know we're talking right now or something around like 15 decibels decibels are a measure of pressure since sound is a pressure wave we describe how intense a sound is using decibels 
iPod ear earphones mm-hmm. or earpods mm-hmm. or ear, whatever they're called earbuds earphones. earbuds thank you that's the word I'm looking for <laughs> buds uh, those can get up to like 120 or something or like 120 like super loud and that noise exposure uh, only takes like 15 minutes or like an hour to get actual like hearing loss wow um, according to some sources Eric said the damage affects his ability to hear high pitches about 4,000 hertz. Yeah, probably like, that's our high frequency stuff. And that's usually the first thing to go too. And I, I guess for me, it's, it was just an, an episode or a lesson in caution about protecting uh, a sense that I found so valuable and also about how precious that is. So it, I think it was an important life lesson. I always wear uh, earplugs now. As for that ringing in Eric's ears, the ENT physician told me that the tinnitus may or may not go away. You're just going to have to find out, but it could be permanent. And the idea of a permanent ringing in the ears is just a maddening thing. At night, if you plug your ears and just listen to what's inside and you hear this ringing for no reason, it's really disconcerting. And it took probably about six months for the tinnitus to go away. I have friends who you know have a low level of that all the time. For me, mainly, it's just a constant ringing day and night, really. This is Tom Honey. Like Eric, he's a musician. And actually, Eric recommended that we get in touch with him. Tom's tinnitus is persistent. Some nights, it even keeps him from sleeping. You know, some nights are harder to get to sleep. So some nights, you'll take a good few hours to get to sleep. So then the next morning, you've had, you know, four or five hours sleep rather than eight hours sleep or whatever. The way Tom describes it, The ringing is like a nagging sensation that he just can't shake. At night, when it's quiet, it's the only thing he can focus on. It just started coming. Um, Must have been in my mid-teens, probably about 15 maybe. I didn't really think much of it then. Um, Again, I just thought I had my headphones on too loudly or something like that. So I I used back on that a little bit, but it didn't really go. The first main memory I can remember, I went to gig... And it was ridiculously loud, to be fair. So it's probably my fault for standing so close. But yeah, that night it was just, it was horrendous. It was so loud in my ears kind of thing. And it was just, um, could not sleep at all. That's when I realized, ooh, I should probably get this uh, checked out a bit more rather than just leaving it. There's no cure for ringing in the ears. But sufferers find temporary relief by listening to certain noises. A quick YouTube search will turn up pages of videos trying to distract you from that persistent, high-pitched ringing. The most popular one was a six-hour-long recording of a showerhead spraying. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably say it's more of a uh, drowning out thing. Going back to your shower thing, there's um, there's this friend of mine... um, yeah, a friend of mine's wife gets really annoyed with him because apparently there are a few nights when he literally has to have the hoover on. The vacuum cleaner just con- just like all night, and it's just to me that is that is hell on earth right there. But Tom uses a slightly different strategy to combat the ringing. There were, um, there were a few times when you know when you're just listening to music and you just happen to fall asleep to it while it's on. I was listening to a band. I don't know if you heard them, Sigaros. Yeah, Sigaros are amazing. So I used to listen to them loads when I was going to sleep. I just happened to fall asleep a few times, and I thought, ooh, there's something in this. That's when Tom started creating his own sleeping music under the name Good Weather for an Airstrike. It's, it's a delicate balance and act on what's good 
and sleepy and what's really dull and nobody wants to listen to it kind of thing. So I'm trying to keep it to a bit more of a, uh, a lighter sound, so it's just a bit more relaxing background and it's not going to grab your attention while you're trying to sleep. It's tricky to explain to people when they ask me what kind of music that I make because I, I want to just say they're just really boring background music but i'm not a particularly good um salesman if i do that really, really unfortunately tom might not sell it very well but his strategy is effective and a lot of people find his music soothing it's strange because people don't really know how to um similarly to me not being able to really explain how my music goes quite a few people tentatively email me and say uh your music helps me fall asleep is that a nice thing for me to say but yeah it's really cool to hear that because that's the purpose of it being out there our sense of hearing is a delicate process. We can hear because of the close interaction between tiny, vibrating bones transmitting signals to the brain like a kind of Morse code. If one part of this step-by-step process gets damaged, there can be life-altering consequences, from loss of hearing to hearing unwanted noise. Our ossicles, three tiny bones inside the ear, are a huge part of how we perceive the world around us. So let's hear it for those ossicles. We want to thank Dr. Eric Petrus and Tom Honey for sharing their stories with us. They also let us play some of their music during this episode. If you want to listen to more of their music or maybe purchase an album, we have links to their websites on our website, bonelabradio.org. Last week on Twitter, we asked about your favorite bones. People answered pelvis, vertebra, teeth, sphenoid, and many more. Our favorite response, though? The sternum has always been close to my heart. Thanks to everyone who chimed in. If you have questions, comments, you want to talk about your own favorite bone, or you just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook and on Twitter at Bone Lab Radio. This episode was produced by our team, Jeannie Bailey, Dr. Jennifer Fish, Jenny Chi, who also plays co-host, and me, Kate Waranowitz. Ralph St. Louis is our website master, and my sister, Michelle Waranowitz, is our art master. Our team has some exciting news to share. We're now hosted by a company called Acast. They're helping us grow. For our listeners, this means that from time to time, some of you will hear short ads at the end of our episodes, but working with Acast will help us reach our goals of sustaining the show and funding outreach projects at Mission Science Workshop and beyond. Thanks for listening. We have some exciting episodes planned, and we look forward to sharing them with you. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. Word of mouth is very persuasive. You should also tell us what you think. Give us a rating and review us on Acast, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For those of you who really like the show, we have a monthly newsletter. If you sign up, you'll be in the know. You'll hear it directly from us when episode 4 comes out. You can find a track list for all the songs we used in this episode on our blog, And we want to thank our generous sponsor, the American Association of Anatomists.